May 15, 2013. After this message, we're going to take communion together. We'll worship a little more, and or maybe a lot more. Who knows? We'll have to see. Come with me to Matthew 24. Did uh, did you guys feel encouraged during worship? Yes. Amen. In Matthew 24, go ahead and scan down. Find the uh, seventh verse. I got your finger on it. In Matthew 24, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. I would just like to tell you that Jesus was never unnecessarily redundant. There is nothing in his word that is filler. When he says nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, in my opinion, this is a double reference. Of course, nations are made of peoples, and this word in Greek is ethne. And it literally means, in, in Hebrew it's goyim, it literally means the peoples or families of the world. But when we get to kingdom against kingdom, what is a nation if it's not a kingdom? I believe that Jesus is drawing our attention to two kinds of struggles. One that is occurring between human beings and political entities and nations with borders and languages. And one that is occurring between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. That battle takes place in a lot of ways and a lot of times. You know that in Ephesians 6.12, most of you can quote it, says something to the effect of, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But what is it against? Powers and principalities in the dark and heavenly realms. This is true. We know it's true. We've been taught that it's true. We've been taught to war against spiritual powers. And while we do not battle against men, make no mistake, the battleground, even with spiritual powers, occurs in one place. It occurs in the hearts of men. A long time before a man ever sins, or a long time before a man ever commits a righteous act, something has happened inside of him. He may have been pushed on by outside forces. He may have been compelled by the Spirit of God within him. There may be other players at work, but there's a decision that happens. When we say heart, we tend to think that we're talking about the beating organ in our chest. But the Bible almost never speaks about that beating organ in your chest. In Greek, this is cardio. In Hebrew, it's lib. And it means the very center of a being. Central to who you are. It's speaking of your inner man. The decisions, whether we live or whether we die, whether we advance the kingdom of light or advance the kingdom of darkness, are made in the battleground of the human heart. Perhaps this is why Proverbs 4.23 tells us, Above all else, guard your heart. It is a wellspring of life. If you lived in a land that looked like that map right there, arid and dry, and by the way, those two bodies of water on that map are so salty that you can't get them near your eyes. If you get them in, uh, get it in a cut on your hand, buddy, you, you know it. The, the world's oceans are somewhere between 2 and 4% salt. The salt lakes in the United States are in the 20-something percentage. These are above that. It's the saltiest body of water on the planet. And if you lived there and you had a fresh water source, how would you protect it? 
Would you put a fence around it? Would you put a century at it? What if it was the fresh water not only for you, but for you and your children? What if it was the fresh water for everyone that you knew? This is the sense in which Proverbs is telling you to guard your heart because it is a wellspring of life. It is as if your very life depended upon the inner dialogue that is going on inside of the center of who you are. You ever had one of those days where you were talking to yourself? <laughs> During construction projects that Matthew and I are working on, I can tell when Matt gets really silent, he's working through something inside. Not a problem unless he begins to answer himself out loud. People who meditate, and they're meditating on the Word of God, it is beneficial in every possible way. But you need to understand that the way the King James Bible used to say it is, as a man thinketh, so he is. What we're meditating on determines the outcome of our lives. Turn with me to Genesis 6. Let us look at the 5th chapter, I'm sorry, 6th chapter and 5th verse. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thought of his heart was only evil all of the time. That's a really interesting situation, because in Genesis 2.15, the first thing that God says to a man in the garden is, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I know many people in here may have grown up thinking that God is a God of restriction. That if you're a Christian, there's a long list of things that you do not do, and that's what makes you a Christian. The very first thing that God ever said to a man in Genesis 2.15 is you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I've taken that pretty literally. I've eaten almost everything that walked or moved. The thing is about this freedom is in God's wisdom, He gave us the freedom to choose what we would do, not just what we would eat, how would we, we would react, what we would think, what we would meditate on. And Galatians 5 tells us, do not use your freedom for sin. Well, obviously, man used his freedom for sin. When we got to Galatians 5, 13 through 14, even a church that had been taught by the Apostle Paul was using its freedom for sin. This resulted in a state of the human race just before the time of Noah where there was literally not a person on the planet outside of Noah and his family that wanted to do anything right. Anybody in here have a coffee table in your house? Man, the thing about a coffee table, we don't drink coffee on them too much anymore, do we? We might put books on them we don't read that are put there to impress our friends. Not my, we don't even have a coffee table, do we? We do all of the glass table. If you have a table and one of the four legs is not the same size as the other, what happens? Oh man, it's got an inclination, doesn't it? And it is evil. Anything you put on it, it just slides. It seems that when God made man and man chose for the very first time to use his freedom for sin, it bent all of the human race. So much so that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, the good that I want to do is not the good that I do. Can I get an amen from anybody out there? You ever woke up and said, today is going to be a good day. In the name of Jesus, it's going to be a, a good day. 
Then there was satanic opposition on the way to work in the way of red lights or a fat motorcycle cop that is uh, penalizing you for driving the speed you felt led to drive. <laughs> and all of a sudden, what happened to your good day? We have an inclination for things to simply roll the wrong direction. I want you to know that if the legs on your coffee table are not of equal length, it doesn't matter how good you put something on it, it will roll off of it. This is the state of the human heart, friends. It does not matter how good the Word of God is. It does not matter how good your mother's advice was. It simply just doesn't stick by itself. We need a supernatural aid. We need some kind of help in our lives for this. The way that it said in Hebrews 3.12 is see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Who's he saying that to? Is he saying it to lost people? You can answer me, it's alright. Is he saying it to lost people? You know, it's an interesting thing. We read the Bible as if it were written to people that did not know God. And the reality is every letter is addressed to a church and the parables are about people that thought they were saved. But it's much more comforting for us to think that it must be about somebody besides us. So if the writer to the Hebrews says... See to it that none of you has an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. What do we have a natural inclination or bent to do? It means that we can wake up with the best intentions, but as there begins to be spiritual forces and internal forces, something happens. If we're not careful, if we don't constantly adjust to level, we have a picture in our lobby that every time I walk in, every time I walk in, it doesn't matter how many times it's been said, it's crooked when we walk in. We've rehung that thing and re we might just have to throw it away and get a new picture. I don't know what to say. We'll be praying Psalm 51 over that. Create in us a new heart, Lord, because it cannot be set to level. And all of our very best efforts were a lot like that picture. If it were not for the power of the Holy Ghost, if it were not for the grace that God has lavished on us, there would not be a single level thing in our lives. And if you look very carefully... As you look around, you may see very few level things in your life. I want to encourage you, church, this is not the way that it has to stay. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. Say there when you were there. That brother is some kind of fast. His Bible's leaning the right way. In 2 Corinthians 10, look at verse 3. For though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and pretensions. Arguments and pretensions. Do you remember nothing in the Bible is redundant? There's two kinds of arguments you can have. You can have an argument because somebody has taken you to task and you don't even have to speak back and they're angry. Matthew and I were driving out of Home Depot's parking lot today. I saw a woman approaching from my right, so I slowed down, and I waited, and I looked. She didn't make any eye contact. She didn't show any inclination to go. So I slowly moved forward, and as soon as I get beside her, she throws up her hands and begins to curse. If I talked to her, it'd be an argument. And to the best of my ability, I didn't, I didn't try to wrong her. That's one kind of argument. Pretension is another, though. 
Pretensions are so dangerous. A pretension is a claim as to who is right. Church, when you get into your heart the feeling that you are right, and buddy, you have a right, it is such a dangerous thing. It's like pouring salt in a freshwater well. I want to encourage you as we go through this message, and it's not going to be a long message tonight because I want to worship some more. I, I feel as if we just scratched the door of heaven. So we go through this message tonight. Let's rid ourselves of arguments and pretensions. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If you want to succeed in the kingdom, the very first thing that we have to do is govern our thoughts. Do you know that there are some things you're not even allowed to meditate on? Some things you're not even allowed to sit and contemplate. How many of you are born again? Raise your hand if you're born again. If you're not, don't be ashamed. When you got born again, you pledged to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. This was your pledge. You counted the cost before you took your pledge. We are allowed to contemplate the consequence of what happens to us if we are not obedient. We no longer have the right to contemplate what it is going to cost us to be obedient. We pledged Him our very life. There is no other way to be born again. And as soon as we hear from God or see in the Word something that God wants us to do, or a young lady gives us a prophecy that says it's time for those dreams to come to fulfillment, you have to stand up and take hold of them, you are no longer allowed to sit and contemplate what it's going to cost you to do that. You are no longer allowed to sit and reason God out of your life. We have weapons in our hands. Those weapons are the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the character of God. You compare every thought that tries to enter your heart to your knowledge of God. And when it does not line up with His character, when it does not line up with His Word, you take it captive. Oh, church, if we could learn to take our thoughts captive, our words would be edifying and holy. Our actions would be edifying and holy. How many of you would like to live in a world like that? One of the most basic parables that Jesus taught. It's the first one. I was not born again. I was at a little place called Shenandoah Christian Academy. And it's because I was thrown out of the public school for fighting. <laughs> Apparently 16 or 17 suspensions in the third grade is about as much as the public school system will take in Louisiana. So they put me in a little private school for Christians. Now, do you think everybody in that school is a Christian? Why was I in the school? Because even the lost people didn't want me. We were paying for a different environment. <laughs> One that would accept me. And while I was there, they taught me on the parable of the soul. As I became born again many years later, I looked and I said, Why is this called the parable of the sower? The sower doesn't change. The sower does the same thing in every one of these scenarios. The sower sows. Or he's a farmer who goes and scatters seed. So I wrote in my Bible, parable of the four soils. And I thought, what well, is the soils that change? And for many, many years, I saw the soils as simply different kinds of people. 
What are those four kinds? The first was, was a path that uh, was hard. What's the second? A rocky path. Don't act like you don't know what it is. What's the third? Please God. Not weed. Thorns. Got to be careful these days. Weed and thorns, right? And the fourth, a noble soil. A good soil. Do you honestly believe that there's ever been a human being that was born outside of Christ who was born with good soil in their heart? So they can't be four kinds of people, can they? If there were four kinds of people, one person would be born a hard path, another would be born of good soil, another would be born rocky. That, well, that wouldn't make you wonder. I met people, I wondered if they were born rocky. You were, you were unhappy when you came out of the womb, weren't you? As I began to contemplate this today, I looked at a comparative study of all of them. Let me just walk you through a few. If you want to follow along, you can follow in Mark 4. Of course, it's in Matthew 13. It's in Luke 8. I'm not going to read them because for tonight's sake, I simply want to share a concept with you. And I trust you to go and research. I almost never lie when I preach. And when I do, I tell you. When we look at Matthew and Mark, we see that the path is something where people did not have an understanding and the evil one came and took away what was sown. Mark actually calls that Satan. Luke adds something to it. says that the seed was trampled on. How many times in your life before tonight did you hear the word of God? And just walk on without doing a single thing different. One of the things that hit me today. You know, it's one of those frustrating days. We had a well-laid plan. That didn't work out at all. Every board we cut was too short. Every screw we drove split the wood that we were driving it in. You know, it's just one of those days. You had one? You can talk to me. It's okay. Yeah. Never has anybody died for participating in the service here. Yeah. Hadn't happened. Okay. The rest of you ever had a bad day? So I began thinking about these soils. And it was unfortunate because I got a revelation. Sometimes those revelations pierce you, huh, Jay? I mean, they hurt a little bit. God's not all that interested in your comfort. He's interested in your life. And I realized how many times God was trying to give something good into my heart, something good into my life. And I was like that hard path. How many times that seed simply got walked on. I wish it got walked on by somebody else, Brent, but it got walked on by me. God told me something. And I went, oh yeah, that's right. Well, of course it's right. He told me. And then I walked on without doing a single thing different. I'd like to submit to you tonight that all real revelation, all real growth in the kingdom comes when you break up the soil of your heart. This is why it's the broken and contrite that God doesn't despise. It's, it's a heart He can get seed into. It's something He can plant in. Anybody ever had good seed? Some of you got gardens. You know where to find good seed? Oh man, these days it's getting to be a science. You're looking for something that's not genetically manipulated. You, you're looking for something. I mean, if it's, if it's a carrot, you want it to grow an actual carrot. You can take the best seed in the world and you cannot plant it in that parking lot. You have to do something. To receive the Word of God, we have to be in a place that is more than intellectual acknowledgement that our God is right. 
The demons know that. They know God is right. We have to be in a place where we've exhausted our own arm. And we're like, Lord, I'm deflated of my own dreams. I need you to give me your dreams for my life. This is what it means to delight yourself in the Lord, as the psalm said. It means to be pliable in His presence. When David said, a broken and contrite heart the Lord would not despise, those words literally mean a deflated and crushed heart. One that's been emptied of everything that was in it. Anybody here ever taken a beating? I've had a few physically and emotionally. One time a guy beat me so badly that I still don't remember that evening. But you know what I do know? He changed the way that I walked and acted towards every other human being from that day forward. Sometimes, they say in Romania this way, so don't blame me, blame Romania. Sometimes a good kick in the butt is a step forward. I'm going to tell you the truth in Romania. They say that just a little differently. But I think you got what I'm saying. God allows things into our hearts, into our lives, to break them up. Sometimes it's trial. Sometimes it's tribulation. Sometimes your best laid plans don't work. But this gives you a chance to consider whether it was God's plan or your plan. And cultivate the soil of your heart. Anybody know what, what mankind's first job was? Why was he put in the garden? To work the soil. Man's job still the same. We're supposed to be working the soil of our hearts. There's never been a more jaded, more skeptical uh, generation than this year of, of Americans. You know, terrorists can fly a plane into a building, and the very next day, we got jokers putting up websites that say hey, it was the U.S. government. You know? 45, 50 years after somebody lands on the moon, we got people saying it was a Hollywood creation. It's not really. We are so slow to accept or believe anything because we live in such deceptive times. But if we prepare the soil of our heart rightly, then God will plant in us what is truth. And the spirit He put in us will bear witness with it. You know what hardens a heart more than anything other according to Hebrews? Sin. Sin hardens a heart. It makes it to where when you come into worship, what you notice is that the people are crazy rather than that you feel something different than you felt outside. Sin makes it so that you are so concerned with how you feel and what you think that you've not at all noticed that God is trying to do something for you. Sin hardens a heart. I want to encourage you. Take just a minute. And ask God to soften your heart. If he brought you here tonight, he brought you here tonight because he wants to plant something in you. I, look, I'm a preacher. I've been doing this 20 years. I know what will get a crowd to go rah-rah and what will get everybody to be as silent as a church mouse. I'm interested in pleasing the Father tonight. And the truth is, for much of the day, my heart was harder than it should be. Nobody feels me out there. Amen. Okay. Help, help a poor pastor out. The second scripture, the second part, whether you're reading from Matthew or Mark or Luke, we see the same thing. We see that at once seed that fell on the rocky soil. Matthew says it's not only rocky, it's shallow. Mark says they received at once with joy, but trouble or persecution came and they quickly fell away. Luke makes the point that there was no moisture there. What an interesting environment. How many times in our life did God plant something 
Let's just say it was salvation. And you began to run the race well. A tree grew up. You were springing. You're, you're doing awesome. But now that God has relieved from you the pressure, you're quickly falling away from your good intention that you had. <laughs> you know, we were all jailhouse religion. Every one of us was in a prison of our own making. We erected bars through our sinful behavior all around us that trapped us and snared us, made us feel overwhelmed. And we said, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, if you'll change my life, hence the term life changing ministry, I'll serve you forever. But has that been true every day since? Over the days we simply served ourselves. Rocky soil is not a kind of person. It's a, it's a way that we all act. And what's the real problem with it? It has no depth. How deeply have you dug into the Lord? Are you looking for the minimum? Tonight, is all you want the minimum, let me go fulfill my obligation and be gone. If God's trying to get something to grow in you, isn't it worth cultivating the soil, getting deep roots, and making sure that you bear fruit for Him? Yes. Whose job is it to do that? The church has learned to cross its arms, be raptured from responsibility, and say, Mighty God, if you want it done, you can do it yourself. The church has learned to do that. But our job from the beginning has been to be a gardener. That's our job. And He gave us the freedom to garden well or garden poorly. He gave us that freedom. Now, if something's begun to grow in your life, don't you have an obligation to make sure it grows straight, it grows well, that it reaches its intended height and maturity? The rocky soil is such a sad thing because it had all the potential in the world. There's nothing growing alongside it. There's no yuckiness there. There's simply no depth there. Let me ask you, church, if we had to take ten chapters of John, not in an academic setting, just because you do or don't love the Word, ten chapters of John, name those chapters out loud. Who in here is confident that those ten chapters, you can tell me what they're about? I'm not asking you to raise your hands. I'm saying that we have settled for a marketing-style Christian. Learn to say these three things, and this gives us the USDA stamp that we're Christians, but we might simply be growing in rocky soil. And what happens if trouble or persecution is headed our way? Am I the only one that can feel trouble and persecution heading our way? Come on, is there anybody in here that doesn't think that 20 years from today will be fundamentally different than today in this country? Oh, friends, you need to wake up if you don't believe that. Those of us with a spiritual ear to the ground can hear the hoofbeats of persecution coming. And everyone I know that's gifted in the prophetic realm, everyone, bar none, is saying the same thing. We have to get deep roots. We need to be more than, God forgive me, John 3.16 Christians. We need to know something more than what every lost person at a ball game with a hot dog in one hand and a beer in the other hand knows. We need to know the heart and character of God. Because this is where warfare is done in our hearts. In your internal dialogue, what do you have to fight with? Do you, do you tell yourself, well, pastor says... What, what is going on in your mind when you consider sin? And don't act like you don't. We all do. What comes to mind to combat it? 
you think of looking on something that you shouldn't look on? Do the Psalms come to you immediately? I will set no unclean thing before my eyes. Does Job come to you? I've made a covenant with my eyes. Do Jesus' words come to you? That if a man even looked upon a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. What hits your heart? Because if all you have is, will I get caught or not? Friends, we have an evil inclination. The rocky soil also had no moisture, according to Luke. If you have no depth and you have no water, you are spry to get burned up. How many Christians do you know that are hurt? How many of you know that are wounded? Christianity is a full contact sport, friends. If you're going to play football for a little while, you're going to have an injury or two. You're going to play hockey, you're going to have an injury or two. If you play rugby, you're injured before the game is over. That's just the way those sports work. Christianity is going to have contact with the enemy. And if you have no root and you have no moisture, which is what the scripture says about the rocky soil, you know what you end up? Wounded in man. Maybe this is why you meet so many Christians that say things like, I used to go to church. Oh yeah, I was baptized when I was a kid. All those things. Yes, but did you ever stretch down into the soil? Did you ever ask God to water your heart from the heavens? And did you expect Him to do it when you asked? Because the scripture says that if you ask believing, you have already received it. We have a responsibility to tend to the soil of our hearts. What's after rocky soil, friends? Thorns and thistles. Anybody like thorns and thistles? Anybody in here just hoping to grow some more weeds in your yard? Jennifer, do you remember that house we bought in Middle Springs? We were the first to buy a house in the subdivision. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I stepped out my front door and did like this off of a step and sunk almost weight steep in mud. <laughs> they had not planted anything. They had not grown anything. The soil there was so soft, so muddy, that what we thought was that we could just plant something and it would grow. It's almost as if we thought there was no power of sin in the world. So we planted, and do you know what sprung up right alongside the beautiful Augustine grass we planted? Weeds. And for whatever reason, whether it's the condition of the soil, the quality of the seed, all of those things, I don't know. I know that the seed in the Word is good seed. The weeds outpaced the grass no matter what I did. No matter what I did, the weeds were always taller, always stronger, more prominent than the grass. So I bought something. What do you buy? Weed and feed. Susan, do you have that picture? We found this today. I was surprised that just four years ago this was $15. And today, this is $48. This message is about turf wars, friends. The devil would like to ruin your field. He'd like to damage it. He'd like to make it as hard as that concrete out there so that you can never receive anything new from the Lord. If you've already received something from the Lord, it'll never grow to maturity because you don't deepen it. And if you're deepening it and you've received from the Lord, you have proper moisture, then He's trying to grow things right alongside the truth that can choke it out. We're in a battle, kingdom against kingdom. Look what this says. Southern weed and feed. We're in the south, yes? yes? Build strong, deep grassroots to crowd out the future weeds. 
It even says that it kills what kind of weed? Dollar weed. Well, that is really interesting because when we look at these weeds, Matthew says they're the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth. Mark says they're the desire for other things. Luke says they're cho choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Oh, come on now. Are there some dollar weeds in America that need to be killed? God sows good seed, but we have to work the soil of our heart. We have to weed and feed. We need some turf building bonus southern weed and feed in our life. I don't think you can buy it at Home Depot, but I know that you can ask the God of heaven to use his word that you're putting in your heart to separate fact from fiction, to separate truth from love, to judge even the attitudes and thoughts of your heart so that your arguments and pretensions are no longer, well, he said, and then, you know, I said, and then it's more about what God says. You ever let an argument get away from you? Oh, okay, I'm the only one, me and Steve. You ever let an argument get away from you? Said something that you just wouldn't want tape recorded? And you probably said it to the person you love the most on the planet because you can get away with it. Yeah, I know. I've lived in that field too. She forgives me, praise God. What happens if when that thought hit our heart, the mighty word of God was dwelling in your heart? Because like Psalm 119 said, you were hiding the word in your heart that you might not sin against him. What if in there at the same moment came to mind the tongue holds the power of life and death. Those who love it will eat its fruit out of Proverbs 18. What happens if in your spirit you have something to balance that table at? What do you do with that coffee table with the short leg? You put something under it, friends. What are you standing on? Your legs are out of balance. They One's too short. One's too long. I don't know. It's all fouled up because the Bible says that you have what the Jews call a yetzerah, an evil inclination. And standing on your own two feet will never be enough. It's a battle that you will lose every time. And how do we know it? Oh my goodness, you ever read a history book? You know nations that received the gospel within a couple hundred years enslaved people? Went to war with the rest of the world? Germany's the heart of the Reformation, but what are they known for today? Killing God's people on a scale that had never been done before. Do you think we need some weed in the field? Yeah. Clover. <laughs> Man, there's so many distractions. When you drive home, let's just say it's down 59 or 45. How many billboards are competing for your attention? When you turn on your smartphone, hopefully to read your Bible app, <laughs> how many advertisements are bumping up against you? When you go on Facebook, because you're all Facebook missionaries, I, I can tell. <laughs> How many other things are popping out at you trying to get your attention? We need weed and feed in our lives, friends. If you manage to get something planted in your heart, and you manage to strain to get the soil deep and beg and ask God to help you, then you get to a place where the biggest danger in your life becomes what might be growing alongside the truth. Okay, I, my goal is not to embarrass him by some, I'm going to tell you on this one, do not answer out loud. But, 
if we had little buttons in front of you and you had to type an answer, and your answer was tied to the seat you were sitting in, and every wrong one was going to flash on the screen. Let's imagine this. Quote the first commandment. Think about it for a minute. Maybe the guy next to you types it and you look over and see. You shall have no gods besides me. You know another way to say that in Hebrew? You shall have no gods alongside me. It was never really a threat that the Hebrews would forget Yahweh God altogether. That was not the threat. The threat that was while they said they were following Yahweh God, they would worship Molech in the desert. While they said they were following Yahweh God, they would worship the Alkisei bull from Egypt. The threat was always that they would mix something pure with something profane. Oh my goodness, friends, let me ask you. If you take something that is profane and you put a little truth in it, does it make it holy? If you take the truth and pour profane things into it, what happens? It becomes dirty. The word pure means unmixed with any other matter. Who did Jesus say would see God? The pure in heart. How does a heart get pure? Were you born with noble soil? Oh, you weren't. Were you born with soil that was the right depth and the right uh, thickness and the right uh, density? It requires you to interact with God in a certain way. And He gave you the freedom to do it. You're free to do anything that you want to do. You're just not free to use that freedom for sin. There was good soil. The good soil, Matthew says, are they that understand. You know, it's a funny thing in the Jewish concept. If you understand something, you do it. If you didn't do it, it's because you didn't understand. So when Jesus says something like, uh, you never knew me, what he means is you didn't comprehend what I'm about or you would not have been doing the things that you were doing. To know something in the Bible had to do with experiential knowledge, not head knowledge. Mark says it this way. They accepted the word. Not they acknowledged it. They accepted. They prepared the soil of their heart. They got the depth right. They killed the weeds. They ended up with good soil that could accept what God was trying to grow. Do you know that Paul said that he was in labor pains until Christ was formed in the Galatian church? Let me ask you. Is Christ being formed in your life? Or did you settle for the 8 pound, 11 ounce baby Jesus in the golden diaper that the movies talk about. Is there a fully formed, mature Christ that has been planted in your heart and grown to the place that you do what Christ does? Or have you settled for some miniature version that you're trying to mix with impure matter hoping that it will make it all clean? I love the way that Luke says it. Is there anybody that's born noble? Is there anybody that's born noble? Not in a spiritual sense, there's not. And Luke says about those in the good soil, they are those with pure and noble hearts. How did they get that way? See, pure and noble hearts are going to produce 30, 60, and 100 fold 
of what God put in them. They didn't allow contaminants. They didn't allow something to kill it early. They didn't allow it to get eaten by the birds of the air before it ever got planted. They fought for what they knew was noble. What would define your life, friends? Are you fighting for something that was revealed from heaven? The proverb says, to the glory of God to conceal the matter, and it's to the glory of kings to search it out. When you search out something from the Lord and let it grow in your life when you've received it to the point that it's reproducing, God's Word calls that noble. You have time for one more story? I detest when preachers make up stories. I, I don't like it. I don't know what book they all get it out of. I'm just going to tell you, this is from a man named Diogenes. You can put that up on the screen. He's a handsome fellow, isn't he? I don't know why everybody in the ancient world looked exactly like this. I guess it's because razors were not easy to find. Diogenes lived in the 3rd century A.D. And he wrote a book called The Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. I don't know. Seemed like a dog, too. Diogenes was recording history that went all the way back to the 6th century B.C. So it's 900 years. God only knows if a man 900 years after an event takes place can write about it. But I would like to tell you that in our colleges, they consider Diogenes' writings accurate. They consider what he writes as accurate as what was written by Tacitus about Julius Caesar or any of those things. They do not, however, consider the writings of an apostle that are published around 65 A.D. and we have manuscripts of within 50 to 60 years, those are not authoritative. God only knows why. Maybe the hardness of their hearts keeps them from getting something planted in. But Diogenes wrote about something. He wrote about a king named Megacles. That's fun to say. Y'all can say that out loud. Megacles. <laughs> Megacles is a favorite in Hollywood scripts. This goes back to a time in Athens. You can show us that. Megacles. This goes back to a time in Athens where Troy, Athens, and Thebes are being founded. It's ancient Greek history. And this is an inscription with the man's name on it. Megacles was like any other of the lost monarchs. He was about to go to war with a guy uh, named Cylon of Greece, right? I guess he didn't have a last name. So Megacles is about to fight with Cylon, and he does what any good pagan king would do. He says, Sidon, no reason for us to fight. Can't we all get along? So Sidon comes and he brings his royal contingent with him. And what did Megacles do? Killed them all. Right? Ruthless. Sick. The people of Athens suffered for this. Whether it offended God or was coincidence, who could know? But I don't think there's much that's coincidence in the world. A famine broke out after this. A famine like the world had never seen. In Athens at the time, there is a, uh, a say. Building a new God is like throwing a stone in a quarry. Athens was world famous for their number of gods that they worship. Kind of like New Orleans is world famous for the number of sins that they promote publicly. Or Las Vegas is world famous for every yucky thing you can imagine. Anybody live in Nevada? I heard that the temperatures get up into the 115 Fahrenheit day. Yeah, it's because it's at the mouth of hell. 
Mega Cleanies kills Sidon. It seems to offend God. There's a famine like has never happened before. So what do people do when they have a problem they can't solve? This is when they promise to be religious, right? This is when they, they stretch out and ask a higher power for help. Athens had hundreds of higher powers. The problem is, as this plague went on to about the year 600, none of the higher powers were relieving the plague. You ever had a problem you can't fix? Oh man, your best efforts have not fixed that problem. What do you do? How about, let's look at Proverbs 18, 12 real quick. Tell me there when you're there. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. When man knows that he is about to fall flat on his face and there's nothing that he can do about it for the first time in his life, he says things like, I'm sorry, honey, please don't leave. He says things like, I'm sorry, boss, please don't fire me, I'll do better, even if he doesn't mean it. Trials have a way of humbling the human heart, a way of breaking up that hard soil so that God can get something in there. These people have tried and tried and tried and nothing has fixed their problem. I'm sure that relates to no one in the room, but they had to do something, something incredibly humble. You know, the Athenians were world famous for knowledge, but they had to write to a little island called Crete and a city on the island called Gnosis, which is Greek for truth. Oh man, it hurts when you have to ask outside of your own circle somebody to come and teach you because you cannot figure it out. Anybody ever tried to fix something? Got halfway into it? Didn't even know if you had all the parts left, but you're absolutely sure you can't fix it? We bring it to Bosch when that happens. <laughs> They were in a problem they couldn't fix in the village. So they had to ask a foreigner for help. Understand that the Gospels always required a level of humility that took white-skinned people to Africa. It took people from the east to the west. It was always introduced through the lips of foreigners. You know why? There's nothing more humbling than to have to look at a man that is completely different than you, who has looked at your entire way of life and said, I have the answer for you. You have to swallow so much pride. You have to break up the hardness of your heart so that something can get planted in it. This is why God has always done this. He has always taken men from one nation and caused them to witness to another nation. So they write to the Isle of Crete, the town of Gnosis, for a man named Epaminendas. If you Google his name, you'll find he's famous for a great many things. Paul quotes him in Titus, where he says, uh, what they say about Cretans is, is true. Uh, they're liars, lazy, gluttons. Now what you don't know is that's taken from a work that Epaminendez wrote that said, those who say there is no resurrection of the dead are liars, lazy, brutes. Apparently Paul was reading this guy in the ancient world. But long before there was the Apostle Paul in 600 B.C., this is the man that went to Athens. He shows up in Athens and he talked with the elders and he said, Friends, 
Let me just suppose something. If you have sacrificed to every one of your hundreds of gods and none of them have been able to help you, maybe there is a God that you do not know about. Seemed reasonable to him. So they said, what do we do? How would we know? He said, well, we're going to presume that he's a God above the other gods since these gods were not able to fix the problem and we want him to fix it. So what we'll do is we'll ask him to defy nature. Seemed reasonable to the Athenians. They had tried everything else. They were desperate. You know, sometimes the only time a man will get into church is when he's so desperate he doesn't feel like he has a choice. You remember Jonas Robertson? How, how many people have been saved when they were being sentenced? <laughs> it happens all of the time. Because this is a chance for a man to know what his real destiny is. And the rest of the time he's walking around in denial. Don't wait till there's handcuffs on you, friends. So he shows up and he says, let's do this. You guys have sheep, don't you? They, of course, said, yes, everybody in the ancient world had sheep. said, let's not feed them for a while. And then let's keep them in the pen all night. In the morning, we will open the pen. And you need to have sheep of every kind. Speckled sheep, solid sheep, dark sheep, light sheep. We'll keep them in the pen and then we'll open the pen when they would go out to eat. If any of those sheep don't go out to eat, but instead lay down, we're going to assume that the God above all the other gods wants them for a sacrifice. So the next morning, they threw open the gates and the speckled sheep began to go out. And the choicest ram among the speckled sheep simply laid down and would not eat. And then they looked at those who were solid colors, and they all went out and began to eat. But the choicest ram that was solid color laid down right there. They said, what do we do? He said, these are the ones that the God above the other gods. These are the ones that he's chosen. So they went out to sacrifice. What do you have to sacrifice on? An altar. So they began to build altars every place that these rams were. And friends, there were hundreds. This is as much a historical fact as the fact that Julius Caesar ever lived. It's written about in all Greek literature. You can find it simply by Wikipedia when they go out then and they see these altars and they have the rams and they're making the altars, what are you going to write on that altar? What could you possibly write? Who would know? You don't know the God's name. You've never known him before. One of the men who was going to make the inscription said, maybe we should name him. Epimendez in his wisdom said, this God is answering us precisely because we have said we do not know about Him and asked Him to reveal Himself to us. Write on an Ignostos Theos. So they wrote on an Ignostos Theos. They sacrificed the rams. And Athenian history says the famine stopped. Oh man, was there a day in your life the famine stopped? A day you got born again. And you felt as light as a bird. Like seed that was planted in soil. Maybe rocky, it may have weeds in it, but you began to grow. The Athenians go on as time goes on. And in the first generation, of course, they love these altars and they sacrifice on them all of the time. And they're popular. But as the generations go by, something happened. Weeds grew up around those altars. And when weeds grew up around the altars and they began to fall into disrepair, before long, nobody's remembering what happened. Oh, this is so like the Christian life. He sets you free. You love Him. You're passionate like a Roman candle. 
But the further you get from that event, the easier it is to slip back into the weeds of your old life, the rocky soil and hard hearts. So God did something. About 50, 55 A.D., He sent a Jewish apostle in the 17th chapter of Acts. Picks up in the 16th verse and he addresses the men of Athens. And he says, I can see that you are religious in every way. Because as I was walking around your city, I saw your objects of worship. Now what do Jews know? What is their very first commandment? You shall have no gods besides me. What kind of restraint did it take this man to say, I see that you're religious in every way. You know what he wanted to say. He wanted to say, you pigs, you idolaters, how does hell not open and swallow you? But he learned to control his thoughts. He learned to let the word of God that says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, reign in his heart. Maybe he'd been talking to his brother James. His brother in the faith said, mercy triumphs over judgment. So he looked at the men and he didn't call them idolaters. He said, I see you're religious in every way. For I even found this one altar with an inscription on it to the unknown God. He said, I'm here to proclaim what you do not know to you. Sometimes in our lives, friends, we simply need somebody to clear away a few weeds, to kick a rock out of the way and remind us who we're called to. That God has been trying to get the dreamer to awaken. He's been trying to get you to stand up and be who God's called you to be, but you've let other things grow up around it and choke it out. He's here to remind you of what was once unknown to you, but now is named. He quotes a prophet, and he says, as one of your own prophets or poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. That was Epimenendez. Paul had read it. Paul knew the history of the city. And he went and found the only remaining altar. He said, Ignostos Theos, to the unknown God on it. And he came to proclaim to them what God was trying to do in their lives all along. Is there someone in the room tonight that God has birthed in you? A plan, a vision, a future, an identity. Everything else has been growing up around it. Trying to choke it out so that you forget the one who saved you. The one who did for you what no other effort was able to do. You have a job. Your job is to work the soil of your heart that what God has planted in it will grow rightly. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. Communion could just be a weird religious ritual. For a lot of people it is. They go and take a magic pill. For us, let me tell you what communion is. Communion is a chance to work the soil of our hearts. It's a chance to say, Lord, I renew my commitment to you to break up the foul ground. I renew my commitment to you to deepen my soil and get rid of the rocks. I remove my commitment to you to have no gods alongside you. Lord, I will be what you have called me to be. That's what communion is. I'm going to do it today with a sincere heart. Can we put Hebrews 10 on the screen? Maybe verse 26. I want you to see. Put Hebrews 10, 22. 
Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. <coughs> Keep going. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Oh, Jesus, friends, let us not give up meeting together. Is it your first time in church in a while? Have you swerved from the arrow or the direction God fired you? Because you can get right right now.